So uh, we started uh, the book of 1 John in, uh, toward the end of September, and uh, this first Sunday of the year, in fact, this Sunday and next Sunday, this is going to be kind of a two-part sermon, and so um, we get to finish the book of John as we start into the new year, but I'll be honest with you, I, I don't know, um, I don't know, maybe a better is too uh, strong of a way to say it, but uh, it's a really excellent passage of scripture to begin our year with. As we think about how the year unfolds, as you think about what occurred in your year last year, uh, I think as we move through this passage of scripture today, you'll begin to see, yes, we need this. And we need this at the beginning of the year. We need this not just on January 1st and January 8th, but January 1st and 2nd and 3rd, all the way through December 29th, 30th and 31st. And so um, uh, we'll ask for the Lord's help as he uh, leads us through this morning. But we began the book of First John with uh, considering four important keys for understanding this letter. So we looked at four important keys for understanding this letter, and we looked at three avenues of assurance that we will see throughout the letter. So by way of review, I just want to hit these four points for you. Number one, these four uh, interpretive helps, right? Uh, keys for understanding it is first, John tells his audience that uh, he wrote so that the family of God would experience full joy through fellowship with one another and or with the Father and with one another through Jesus Christ. So he said, I want you to have fellowship with God and with one another. There, there, there's no room in the Christian faith for Lone Ranger Christians, Right? Sometimes I hear people say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. I just don't need to go to church. I would say you're wrong. I'm not telling you you're not a follower of Jesus. Well, I'm not telling you you're not a Christian. But a follower of Jesus is going to go to church and be connected with God's people. If you're following Jesus, if you're following the apostles' teaching, you'll be connected with your local church actively. Not just when you feel like it, not just... Anyway, I can't preach all four of these points, <laughs> or we'll all be in trouble. Um, secondly, he wrote to prevent sin in the family of God. He wrote to prevent sin in the family of God. Now, we're never going to be in a place where we're rid of sin in a whole church family until we're in glory. And that day is coming, friends. That day will come. You bank your life on it. In fact, we make decisions today based on the hope that means the confident expectation of that reality in the future. Number three, he came to protect them from those who were trying to deceive. There were those in the church who were trying to deceive believers. Everybody's getting all confused. Wait, 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 what's truth? And so he makes that real clear throughout this letter. The fourth interpretive point, which we'll see today, it's in chapter 13 of verse 5, or verse 5 of chapter 13, uh, is that he's writing to give those who believe in Christ, the Son of God, assurance of their salvation. Assurance of their salvation. Now, those four interpretive keys lead us to see three avenues of assurance, as uh, Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary, calls this uh, three avenues of assurance. Right belief in Jesus, right obedience to God's commands, and right love for one another. Okay, and so what's important to understand is those aren't the main things we're to pursue. We are to pursue our relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in the context of biblical community through faith. We pursue our walk with the Lord. 
when we are walking in the spirit, not gratifying the desires of the flesh, as Galatians words it, these things will be true. You see what I'm getting at? It's easy for us to get our mind off of what we really need to be focusing on. We can start focusing on doing actions and saying words that look like biblical fruit of the Spirit. Cart before the horse. Abide in Christ. Walk with the Spirit so that you do not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then all of these things will flow from that. It's important to get it in the right order. Let's look together at uh, 1 John 5. We'll read verses 13 through 21 this morning. Open your Bible. Uh, Bible in the seat back in front of you if you'd like. It's in the very back of the Bible, just, just a few pages before Revelation. Or open your Bible app and we'll, we'll read this together. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we ask whatever we know, we ask, I'm sorry, if, he, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have from him the requests that have been asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that uh, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and this whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, I mentioned to you that this is going to be a, a two-part sermon uh, because there's just too much to be said about these verses that, that, that can be said uh, well and thoroughly enough and to allow you to see where they come from in the text if we try to, you know, kind of pack it all into one sermon. But I will say this, uh, this, uh, this letter sort of properly ends at, chap at verse 13. Now, when we, when we uh, looked at this passage a couple weeks ago, we kind of focused on on stopping at 12, but we read verse 13 sort of as the, this is what he's trying to help them see uh, in, in this part of the letter. But what happens after verse 13 is almost like a PS, right? You might think of it as a biblical warrant for a pastor saying in closing and then continuing on for a while. That's how this pastor likes to think of that, right? There's a biblical warrant for in closing and then, uh, you know, you get the idea. Anyway, so Here's the main idea for this morning. Confidence in Christ empowers believing prayer and keep yourself from idols. Or, this is my first title. This is my second title because it was where I really feel like he hones in on. You might have this as like a, a subtitle. Five affirmations our Heavenly Father wants Christians to know and keep yourselves from idolatry. 
That's how he ends the letter. It's kind of a, an awkward ending. It's, a, it's an exclamation point on the letter. And uh, so the first point we see in verse 13 is we have eternal life. We have eternal life. Now, if you've heard me say this before, I hope that what I'm about to say to you seems very repetitious. If not, that's okay. Uh, but I want you to, to hear this idea. When, when we see the word like have, we have eternal life or we have prayed for you. We can say things in the simple past tense like this. I prayed or I prayed for you. Or you add strength to what you're saying by saying something to the effect of, I have prayed for you, which is what Jesus says uh, to Peter. Satan desires to sift you, but I have prayed for you. That means back here in time, I have prayed for you, and there is an on-during, ongoing effect. And what John is communicating is that if you are in Christ, you have eternal life. A transaction has occurred that we theologically call justification. You have been justified or made right with God through Jesus Christ, and therefore you have eternal life. Do you believe that you have eternal life? Or do you believe that if you sin badly enough, you will lose your salvation. Now, I know the Bible talks about apostasy, those who walk away from the faith. As I understand biblical teaching, what that means is those who are in the community of faith and who profess faith, but have no inward transformation, are not believers and so they have apostatized. They have left the community of faith. Because brothers and sisters, if, if it is true that we can sin and lose our salvation, then our salvation never depended on the finished work of Christ. To know Jesus is to have eternal life. In fact, that's what he says here in the end of, uh, end of the passage there, or in the end of verse, in verse 20 and 21. To know the Lord is to have eternal life. And he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may think, no, that you may know that you have eternal life. Eternal life does not begin when you die. Your eternal life begins when you, when you know the creator, right? So this is not a message of believe and receive. It is a letter that is written so that we might know we have eternal life. And this is, like I said, properly the end of his letter. If you know Jesus, if you have Jesus, or maybe better said, if Jesus has you, you have the peace of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we looked at last time. You have this internal peace through this internal witness of the Spirit of God within you to recognize truth, to know that you have eternal life. And brothers and sisters, if you will allow your soul to rest there, 
it does not lead to a position of casual, half-hearted Christian living. It does not, should not, there are Christians who live complacently, so I don't want to say that in an absolute sense, but it does not lead to casual living. It does not live to, I mean, does not lead to commonplace, run-of-the-mill Christian living. It leads to a believer who is confident in their relationship with God. And therefore, therefore, they will put on the armor of God. Therefore, they will face whatever the Lord brings, knowing that whether or not they pass a particular test, they are God's child and he will carry them through. He will carry them home. He wants you to know this. I want to ask if you believe this. When he says, I write these things, what are these things? Well, verses 1, 1 through everything up to this point when he writes that sentence or the end of this letter. I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. And then he moves on to talk about how this confidence, the first words of verse 14, lead to the confident assurance that God answers prayer. God answers prayer. Now, if you're anything like me, you struggle with us a bit. Because you think, well, I've prayed for things and God hasn't answered them. Well, this is conditioned on some things. This is conditioned on some things which we looked at when we were looking at chapter 3. It's conditioned on obedience. It's conditioned on living in a lot, living a life of faith so that we do what pleases him. Right? What he's saying is when, when you lack assurance of faith, you lack confidence in your relationship with God. And what do you do? Well, a lack of prayer is a lack of one who believes that prayer actually matters. Lack of prayer in your life is a a lack of confidence that what God promises in the word of God is actually true. You don't pray. I don't pray at times. Why? Because we think we can handle it. We think we've got it. We think we can handle life on our own and that the promises of God may or may not help us and prayer is optional. And it's very possible to live a long life of Christianity without much confidence, kind of moving back and forth and back and forth. Are God's promises really true? When I pray, they don't seem to come true. What is happening here? Well, when you lack assurance of your eternal life in Christ, you lack confidence in your relationship with the Lord. And I'm not talking about false confidence that masquerades as true confidence. What really comes out there is an overconfidence. Somebody comes at you and they're just super confident over the top. What do you think? They are insecure. They are not confident at all. They're just trying to convince me that they're confident. Takes one to know one. True confidence means you can really know, you can be confident that God answers prayer. 
And this is really where the bulk of this section comes out. That's why I changed my sermon title really toward the end of my preparation. Uh, R.A. Torrey says, prayer is the key that unlocks the storehouses of God's infinite grace and power. God is not weak, friends. God owns the storehouses of grace and love and mercy and kindness and holiness and wrath and justice and judgment, all of it. It unlocks the storehouses of God's infinite grace and power. All that God is and all that God has is at the disposal of prayer. We have a neighbor who uh, built a, a pretty cool classic car with a great engine. And man, he starts that thing and you just kind of, the neighborhood kind of hears it. Not in a bad way, not in a, like an irritating way, but just a, it's just that nice low rumble, you know? And you just hear horses under that hood, all right? Let me tell you something. If he does not put that thing into gear and step on the gas pedal, it's not going anywhere. All those horses just make noise. If we don't pray... All that God has and all that God is, which is at the disposal of our lives in prayer, remains untapped. Just a rumbling noise in the life of a believer, ready for the clutch to get put down, shifted into gear, and engaging the gas pedal. He says we must use the key. Prayer can do anything that God can do. Since God can do anything, prayer is omnipotent. I read that at first and I was kind of like... But I get what he's saying. When we have the privilege of talking to the omniscient, means all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, powerful creator of the universe, and he says, come to me and ask for what you wish, and I will answer you. We would pray more, wouldn't we? But I said a minute ago that it's conditioned. It's conditioned on two things we already looked at in 1 John 3, obedient living and doing what pleases him in faith. And here John adds this third condition that we must ask according to his will, which is why it's a wonderful way to pray confidently. Ask whatever you want, Lord, if this is according to your will. That is not, I've heard some people say, well, that's just for people who don't really believe. Well, actually, no, I think it's for biblical praying Christians who say, well, I can ask. I know that he hears. That means he hears with an intent to do it, right? It's not like talking to your kids and saying, hey, would you come wash the dishes? You know, they heard you, but they have no intention to act according to what they hear. They're not hearing you in that same way, right? If you go to a bank and you've got a safety deposit box, well, what happens? Well, you go, you say, hey, I need to um, have some time in the uh, with my safety deposit box, and they, that sounds like you're going on a date with your safety deposit box, but anyway, you know, so you go, and, and uh, the, either the manager or whoever's uh, doing that for the day will come, and they'll bring their key into the room, uh, and they'll put their key in, you know, they'll pull the box, they put their key, and then you put your key in. Both of those keys have to be here. In this sense, what he is saying is there are three keys that need to be there. There are three conditions that need to be there. We're living obediently to the best of how we're able at that moment. Or generally speaking in life, we're living obediently, we're striving imperfectly to follow the Lord. And we want to do what pleases him in faith, and we want to pray according to his will. According to his will. And so we go, and we go with confidence. One key in, two keys in, three keys in, turn the keys, and we ask. 
and we ask big and we ask boldly and we say, God, you own the heavens. You own the world. <coughs> Sorry. So I'm asking. George Mueller was a, um, a great man of prayer. Ran a, an orphanage. I don't know if you've ever... If you, if you love reading biographies, there will be almost... Uh, a lot of really good biographies. But George Mueller's biography is, will be such an encouragement to your soul. If you say, you know, I wrestle with prayer... Read George Mueller's biography. You will be encouraged in your prayer. But anyway, he, he refused salary. He refused uh, financial support for the ministries that he led. And he, he was a leader in the Christian Brethren movement, movement. And he prays this. He says, prayer is, listen to this, friends. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. Sometimes we pray... As one who says, oh, if I just say the right words, or if I, I look like I'm living well enough, or if I impress God with my words or my length of words or, or the, the, the intellect of my words, then I will overcome God's reluctance. He says, prayer is laying hold of God's willingness. Prayer is laying hold of God's willingness to work on behalf of a believer. Now we're talking about praying according to God's will. Why would anybody want anything according to God's, God's will? Well, actually, there are plenty of reasons. If we're honest with ourselves, there are plenty of reasons why someone might want something that's according to, or, or according to our own will, not God's will. This is why idolatry is mentioned more than one time in this book. And I think it's why he ends the last verse. That's why I added on the, like awkwardly at the end of these sermon titles, right? Oh, and stay away from idols, right? Uh, we battle with our hearts with idolatry all the way back from Adam and Eve. Did God really say, well, you know, you're bringing up a good point. All he did is tap into what she already wanted gave an opportunity for sin, right? That's what James tells us, that we sin when presented with something that we already desire, something that's already desired within us, and it grows from there. I mean, all throughout, right? You think of idolatry in one of the earliest senses, where Moses is up on the mountain praying, and the other Israelites are at the base of the mountain, and Aaron, man, he's got a rowdy bunch down there. And all of a sudden, Moses, who is the voice of God to them, goes up on the mountain, and he's gone for a while. And like, we need something that we can see to worship. Right? Well, like any good escaper of responsibility from their own sin, the Lord's like, looks down. I mean, he's all-knowing, so you, you get the idea. But he says, Moses, you better get down there so I don't smoke these people. That's the... Uh, Pastor Matt McGee, very loosely prayers phrase version. Moses goes down and he's like, oh, like I've been up here with the Holy of Holies, the Holy One. And like he tells me we need to put a pin in it to come down here and talk to you guys. Right? Aaron starts off. Hey, everybody, go get your gold. Go get your fine jewelry. Bring it here. We melt it all down. Moses comes down. He says, hey, what happened? Well, they threw in the, they threw it in and out came a calf. 
right? I mean, there's a section, there's like, it's funny because there's, there's, a, there's, there's <laughs> Moses or Aaron's version, and then there's God's version. No, here's, here's what really happened. And he's saying here, we deal with idolatry in our hearts, people, things, goals in life, that when we fix our eyes on the things that are temporary, temporary goals, family relationships outside of the bounds of what God would intend us to for the sake of eternity. It's possible to worship your family. It's possible to worship your kids. Well, my kids have to have all of the opportunities. My kids have to, I mean, I, I, I could go on and on. So I'm not, I just give one or two examples, but it's very possible to be a good hard worker and worship your job or worship uh, respect that you might get at a job or, or worship a potential inner satisfaction with getting the next promotion or whatever that might be. Now, the beautiful thing is none of those things are sinful on their own. The promotion, uh, working hard at your job, being respected by others, loving your children and wanting to spend quality time with your family. All of these things are wonderful gifts from God that we're called to actually do those well. But when they get out of kilter, it reveals an idolatry in our heart. And so when we focus on these things that are temporary more than the Lord, we begin to see, oh, I've got idolatry going on here. And that's the exclamation point at the end of this letter here. So what, what he's saying is it's right and it's good to train our hearts so that we will pray according to God's will. So we ask this question when we pray. Do I think, based, hear this friends, do I think, based on what I know of God through the Bible, that what I am asking for is according to God's will? That is a very different thought process then. Do I think that God would want this for me? And here's what I mean. You're in a relationship, and the relationship's hard. I'm not even going to go so far as marriage at this point, because I, I just am just saying you're in a marriage. I mean, a, a, whether it's a marriage or a friendship or church family relationship or whatever it might be. And you say, boy, this is hard. God wouldn't want me to have to deal with that. Well, I beg to differ. Because it's through these trials that God sharpens and shapes our character. It's through these trials that we become shaped to be more refined according to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So could it be possible that God actually wants me in a hard relationship? I'd say it's more than possible. It's probable according to what we know of God in the scriptures. So you must ask, according to God's, what I know of God through his word, might this be his will for me? And then you pray accordingly. But we started off with, well, why would I ever want to pray for anything that's not God's will? Well, because it's easier. Now, now it seems easier. It feels easier. Down the road, it's always harder, right? You come to a decision point. You come to a decision point in your life, and if we're going to make a V here, and this side says, this is easier now, but it's going to become hard later. If it's not according to God's will, not according to God's ways, or you're at a decision point here, and it's going to be harder now. But when we follow God, believing his promises, we know that down the road, it is going to become easier. So you've got two choices before you. You have a decision to make that you're seeking to make through prayer and according to God's will. And you think, I'm either going to choose what's easy now and hard later, 
or hard now that will be easier with a biblical worldview in it down the road. Friends, if we'll discipline ourselves, if we'll discipline our children to say, choose what's hard now so that as you grow in Christ, it becomes easier later. It's much harder later to deal with consequences. Does dealing with hard later mean you're not a good Christian? No. I know some wonderful dear people who love Jesus. And earlier in their lives, they made some choices that resulted in what seemed easier at the time, maybe easier than a situation they were in, but the consequences of it down the road, much, much, much harder. And so he's saying we have a God who has the omnipotent resources of the universe at his disposal, or he is that omnipotent one. And he is ready for us to call on him in prayer, praying according to his will and knowing that he hears us. God knows what is best and he wants what is best. He wants his glory and our good. And the moment we want our good more than his glory, you have idolatry. One friend has said, if you'll sin to avoid it or you'll sin to get it, it's an idol. If you'll sin to avoid it or you'll sin to get it, it's idolatry. And that's where we get into, well, it's not that bad of a, eh, you're already passed. You've already, you've already shot the starting gun toward that decision. Danny Aiken, president of Southern uh, or Southeastern, I mentioned him earlier, but he says, God wants to give you what you would want God to give you if you were wise enough to want it. God wants to give you what you would want God to give you if you were wise enough to want it. I love that. If we were smart enough in our eternal intellect, if we knew God's possible plans and God's plans in our own hearts, we would say, I want what God deems best for me. I'm just not wise enough to know what that is all the time. And I am at the front of that line. I truly am. God's will will always be better than what you want in your temporal perspective. Listen to Romans 12, verse 2. He says, do not be conformed, right? Think of an ice tray. You put water in the ice tray, the ice freezes in the shape of the, of the whatever the ice cube shapes are, right? Do not be conformed, formed according to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, that which is good. God's will is good. God's will is acceptable. God's will is perfect. Right? It's good, pleasing, and perfect. Good, acceptable, and perfect. But that comes as our minds are renewed, that by testing we would begin to see that. And then in hindsight, you look back and you say, oh, God's will would have been better. Or, or you learn to discern it, you make a really difficult decision, and it seems wrong to maybe those who are closest to you, or whatever the case might be, and, and later you learn, oh, that was right, maybe. This testing happens through processes of success at times, and, and failure at other times. 
So you shouldn't think that if you prayed for something and you did your very best to discern the will of God, knowing that you're trying to connect what God's will would be to the word of God according to his character, and you make the wrong decision, that you're a failure before God. No, you're learning. You're being tested. You're growing. Nobody goes from first grade to second grade without taking tests. Nobody goes from second grade to third grade grade without taking more tests. And if you fail enough tests, they say, you got to do this one over again. And the Lord, no different, like a teacher, one who trains, one who disciplines, one who disciples and disciplines his children, which means to train in righteousness, disciplined training in righteousness. He says, oh, you need that. You need that one again. You got to repeat that spiritual grade. Do you know how many spiritual grades I've repeated? I am not going to embarrass myself and tell you. I want God's will. But at times I'm not wise enough to want God's will. And then he says, with this great confidence, direct this incredible effort in prayer toward your brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? And we see this in verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees a brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask Knowing that God hears, knowing that God wants righteousness for the brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, just go back to chapter one and two and you see all that over again. Knowing that God wants to be connected in biblical community, ask. You see a brother committing a sin, ask. Who? God who hears. God who has the storehouses of of, of wisdom and might and power. The only one who can change a heart. I've said before, there's times I pray prayers uh, for people or, or others have, I know, I know, have prayed this for me. Father, do whatever you need to do to grab a hold of his heart, her heart. As harsh as it needs to be to get his or her attention and as gentle as you can. Because that's the heart of God towards his children. It's every parent's heart toward their child. Lord, I don't want my kids to go through difficulty, but you know what I do want? I want them to follow you. And I want them to know what it's like to walk with their heavenly father. And so if they got to go through whatever seems like a terrible path is ahead of them, I don't want that, but I can't rescue them from it. Why? Well, the Bible says when we rescue people from the consequences that come their way, it's not health helpful. It's not good. So to pray according to God's will says, I'm going to allow the consequences, depends on the age and the consequences and a whole bunch of stuff that you have to factor in there, but I'm going to let the consequences be because sometimes it's the consequences, the natural consequences, not vengeance, not, you know, I'm mad, so they're going to hurt. No, no, no. According to God's will, God brings and allows natural consequences. And even when we're repentant, even when we're walking with Christ, sometimes natural consequences just stay because it's a natural part of life. Jacob limped. Paul had a thorn that the Lord wouldn't remove. David lost a child. Repentant, grieved, And God said, I'm going to take him. You'll see him. You'll see him one day. Moses, not able to enter the promised land. Why? All of the things Moses did, you and I, if we were to stack it up, 
we would say, oh, he did way more good than bad. But there was a point when Moses' heart was proud and his idolatry, idolatry was king of his heart. He was beating his chest. And God said, tap the rock and I'll bring forth water. And what did he do? He takes his staff and he strikes the rock twice. And he says, must we? And the Lord was like, what, what we, Kimasabi? <laughs> like, seriously, how did you do that the last couple times? No. A godly, Godward-focused leader became frustrated with the circumstance and the responsibility that God called him to, and he acted out of his own pride and anger and impatience. And if there's one thing that you learn about I don't say working and being a part of any of God's systems, marriage, the family, the church, you will soon learn that efficiency never seems to be God's goal. Efficiency never seems to be God's goal. But God is always effective in how he seeks to lead his people. And so we pray according to this will. And so now he gets into this, there's prayer that leads to death, but there's not, there's, there is a sin that leads to death, but I'm not talking about the sin that leads, and it's just this very confusing kind of a sentence for us. And, and I, have to, I have to touch on this quickly, and there are two good reasons for it. Number one, at this point in my message, it will be hard for me to spend much time here. It feels a little warm in this room, maybe it's just me, but it will be too, a little bit hard to spend too much time here at this point in the message. But the second reason, and the better reason, and the main reason is this. It's not John's main point. So we're going to touch on it, and we're going to step off of it, and we're going to wrap up. Like, really? <laughs> I set you up poorly at the beginning of the sermon for this. So we direct this incredible confidence toward, in prayer toward our brothers and sisters in Christ that we see committing a sin that does not lead to death. We see it, which means equivalent to saying we hear it. We're not judging a heart. It's very common today to say, you know, don't judge. Sometimes we say it playfully, that's fine. Worse, we believe that we're wrong if we call someone out on their sin. And that is contrary to the Bible, brothers and sisters. Now we need to do it loving. We need to take the speck out of our own eye so that we can see clearly to help take the log. I'm sorry, we take the log out of our own eye so that we can see clearly to help another take the speck out of their own eye. But we are, in order, we are to be able to see clearly through the filter of scripture motivated by, by humility and love. See, it's such a part of our culture. I have to bracket it with 15 disclaimers. Well, I can't call them out on that because I've got sin in my own life. Well, then deal with the sin in your own life, what you know of, and in love, approach a brother or sister. Go about it wisely, gently lovingly. So when you see someone committing a sin, Matthew 5, 18 and 19, he says, Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth, in other words, what you see, what you hear, it proceeds from the heart. That's idolatry. Uh, what comes out of the heart was evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. So we're not rushing to judgment. If we see something that's contrary to God's word, and we seek in love to bring it to someone else's attention, that's our aim. That's our aim. 
He's contextualized this, Jesus has, as he's talking to the Pharisees, who are very good about trying to check the boxes spiritually. And Jesus says, before he made that statement, he says, every plant that my heavenly Father has planted will not be rooted up. I'm sorry, I read it in the converse, but it's still true. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. I think that's what I said. (laughs) And so we're to pray. Our prayers are under the effective sovereign control of the Lord, and God uses your prayers to restore the life of others at times. The Lord uses your prayers and is inclined to act on behalf of your prayers toward a brother or sister in Christ. And then he talks about the sin leading to death and the sin not leading to death. So let me just mention here that there are uh, a, a few things to notice. He says, if anyone sees a brother committing to sin that does not lead to death, pray. Pray that God will give him life. Pray that God will give him life. That doesn't mean salvation, because he says, if anyone sees a brother, if you see a Christian committing a sin not leading to death, ask God to restore them. Now I want to ask you, do you know church family that have been a part of our church that just aren't here? I'm not saying that they've denied the faith. I'm saying God calls us to be together. Go talk with them humbly. Check your own heart. But if you see him committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, go pray. Pray first and go talk with them. So that's your job as a pastor. I mean, not according to this. It's our job as the body. That's what it is. It's our job as the body. There is a sin that leads to death, though, and this is where it gets a little confusing. And, and, and if you land on one position or another, I'm going to lay kind of a few of them before you, but there are, there are theologians on both sides that love the Lord and honor and, and respect the word of God. Sin leading to death. What, what might this sin leading to Beth, death be? Well, there might be a sin leading to death from the standpoint of someone who is, has been uh, in the faith, a community of faith, and they leave the faith, and they deny the gospel. They deny Jesus. Well, I once believed, but now Jesus is not the only way. Persistence in that. I don't mean even just once somebody says it one time, and then they're done. And then maybe the Lord brings them to repentance, and they come back, and they repent, and they say, oh, Lord, how wicked I was to say such a thing. No, there's a persistence in lack of belief that says Jesus is not the Savior. Whoever denies me before my fa- before mankind, I will deny before my father. Most believe this is referring to the sin of giving credit to Beelzebub, the devil, essentially, for work that the Holy Spirit has done. Right? We see that in Matthew, we see it in the, in the Gospel of Mark. When God is on the move, when God is working, and someone says, Satan's doing that, which is interesting because he says, well, even now we know that the whole world is under the power of Satan. In verse uh, 19, Satan, the prince of the power of the air. We start accrediting, accrediting things to him that the Lord is doing. That's probably that sin that can't be repented of. Can't that can't be repented of? This this sin that leads to death. It might might also just be a persistent, willful, knowledgeable, intentional sin. 
and a person. And that's just unbelief. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to change. I'm not going to come back. Well, what they're showing is they're not. They don't have the Spirit in them. They don't have the Spirit in them. But he ends, and this is where we're going to end. He says, he ends, he says, there is sin that leads to death. I don't say that one should pray for that. That's an interesting thought. What do you do then? You leave it to the Lord. If you're not sure, just, just pray and commit it to the Lord according to God's will. And then he says, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And in that sense, he's saying, when you see a brother or sister committing a sin or committing sin that does not lead to death, pray for them. Ask God to bring down his loving conviction and make them so miserable that all they can do is look to God and say, God, I throw myself on your mercy again. Again, here I am. Restore me. Done. Now, Depending on where this person is on this road, they might have made the easy decision here, and now they're halfway down this road. Restoration is always possible. It is not always easy. Often what happens is a humbling of oneself. It's hard to walk back in after you've been gone for so long. Well, one thing that we can do is make it easy for them. We can't take away the consequences that the Lord brings and allows in their life. But what we can do is when they walk in, they see the smiling faces of a bunch of people who love them. Because we want more than anything for them to know God. We believe that they do know God and to love God and to experience the joyful reconciliation with the body of Christ. We don't want to make them have to prove themselves to us. But there are times that we say we do want to look for genuine fruit of, in keeping with repentance. But come in. It's good to see you, brother, sister. Love them. Welcome them. Walk with them. And disciple them. And that what's, that's what God's called us to. So very quickly, and this is, I already said I'm closing, so I can't say it again. But I want to review, these are the three points we're going to look at next week. Okay, I'll put them up for you. Uh, God has given us ultimate victory over sin. We belong to God, our Father, and we know what is true because we are in Him who is true. And keep yourself from idols. 